On today's show, Yiddish wrestlers, boxers, and Yiddish expressions for beating up your neighbor, plus an interview with one of Joni Mitchell's best friends. Stay tuned. There's going to be lots of great music. I'm your host, Tamara Kramer, and you can download this or past episodes of Shtetl on the Shortwave from iTunes or at shtetlmontreal.com. Welcome to Shtetl on the Shortwave on CKUT 90.3 FM in Montreal. And for this first episode of Shtetl on the Shortwave that I'm doing back here in Canada, nothing seemed more perfect than to talk about the poet queen, Joni Mitchell. Last week at Blue Metropolis, one of Joni's oldest friends, author, singer, and journalist, Malka Marom, spoke with me about her 40-year relationship with Joni and about the new book, Joni Mitchell in her own words, which is a transcription of three interviews that she did with Joni over the span of 40 years. I'm going to play that interview and also a lot of classic Joni Mitchell on the second half of the show. But before that, what's the first thing that comes to mind when you hear the word Jew? Maybe don't say that out loud. Uh, I'm sure uh, none of you thought fighter, tough guy, or Yiddish rabble rouser. Well, think again. We're going to talk with Eddie Portnoy, professor of Yiddish at Rutgers University, about a new exhibit he curated called the Yiddish Fight Club. It's at the YIVO Institute in New York City. And while I'm getting Eddie on the phone, here's a Yiddish-English tune by Daniel Kahn and the Painted Bird for May Day. It's called March of the Jobless Corps. And we'll be back in a few minutes with Eddie Portnoy. Marching jobless corps, no work in the factories, no more manufacturing. All the tools are broken, rusted, every wheel and window busted. Through the city streets we go, idle as a CEO, idle as a CEO. Well, one, two, three, four, join the marching jobless corps. We don't have to pay no rent, sleeping in a camping tent, dumpster diving, don't take money, every bite we share with 20, let the yuppies have their wine, bread and water suit us fine, bread and water suit us fine. Well, one, two, three, four, join the marching jobless corps, worked and paid our union dues, what did years of that produce? Houses, cars, and other shit for the richest benefit. What do workers get for pay? Hungry, broke, and thrown away. Hungry, broke, and thrown away. Well, 
Shim Lang in Fabrikum Hammer Clank, a sliggin' Caitlin, Count Van Gessen's neck, her jabberization, Fresen Gay and Mir, Roman Gas, Pedic Vier in Pusten Pass, Pedic Vier in Pusten Pass. Eight, two, three, four, Arbis Lose the Zen in Mir, Joren Lang, the Arbis Schwero, and Geschaft out, Mero Ner, Heiter Schlesser, Schmetten Lender, Shtetl on the shortwave with the very funny and lovable Eddie Portnoy. He's a professor of Yiddish and the author of many intriguing and hysterical articles about Jewish history. You really have to Google him, Eddie Portnoy. And now he's the curator of a new exhibit happening in New York City at YIVO called the Yiddish Fight Club. Uh, Eddie Portnoy, welcome back on Shtetl on the shortwave. Thank you. Happy to Happy to be back on Shtetl on the shortwave. It's always fun to talk to you, and you have a very bizarre uh, <laughs> outlook on Jewish history, which I really appreciate, and I think a lot of other people appreciate too, and which is so unusual. What was the inspiration for this exhibit, the Yiddish Fight Club? Uh, it's actually two different projects that I, I combined to one, and the initial inspiration was many years ago when I was researching my dissertation, which was on cartoons of the Yiddish press. I stumbled upon a number of cartoons in the Warsaw Yiddish press from the mid-1920s that used a wrestling as a metaphor. For instance, they would show two heads of Yiddish school systems in, in the wrestling ring or two cantors that were vying for a post uh, in, you know, in the wrestling ring. <laughs> and I thought that's a really strange metaphor to use because typically in, in Yiddish cartooning, the, the most typical metaphors are uh, traditional religious metaphors. They'll you know, take a a quote from the Bible and apply it to some modern political phenomenon or event, or, or you know, take a, some you know a quote from the Talmud and and, and uh, you know apply it ironically to some you know social issue, uh, some contemporary social issue. Uh, so when I saw wrestling, I thought that's really strange. You know, what do Warsaw Jews in the 1920s know about wrestling? Hmm. So I my interest was piqued, and I went uh, started looking through the back pages of the Yiddish newspapers of Warsaw. And sure enough, I started to find advertisements for wrestling matches and uh, little reports, um, you know, t- talking about who, who won the previous night's matches. And 
eventually I started to find, you know, full articles, you know, that talked about, you know, wrestling and, and professional wrestling in, in the Warsaw Circus. And there were Jewish wrestlers involved. A huge proportion of the audience uh, was Jewish. Hmm. Uh, they, in fact, uh, not only was a significant proportion of the audience Jewish, but a, a large number of them were, were Hasidim, which was something that, you know, was sort of unexpected. The one of the one of the reporters also noted that when when the Jewish wrestler was in trouble, the Hasidim would all stand up and start singing psalms. <laughs> uh, so there was this really kind of strange, you know, it's like this strange melange of of, of you know modern, urban, low culture and traditional Jewish life, which I found really compelling. I, I actually stopped working on my dissertation and just researched Jews and wrestling for a semester. And I would have, I, I, you know, I got I get distracted. What can I tell you? I, uh, so I wound up writing a large article for an academic journal called the Drama Review about Jewish popular entertainments in Poland before World War II. And the, the major focus was on wrestling, but there were also, um, you know, I also included circus sideshow performers, drag queens, you know, all kinds of um, hmm. you know, sort of marginal performers, you know, were working in Warsaw who were also Jewish and, and incorporated some sort of Jewish element to their act. A few years after that, I... A colleague of mine had asked me to look up an article for him in uh, a 1926 Yiddish linguistics anthology. And when I was looking for this article, I accidentally stumbled on another article that was a lexicon of Yiddish fighting terms. Hmm. And um, this I found really compelling. It was all, you know, there were all these sort of really fascinating, colorful uh, terms in Yiddish for all kinds of different, you know, punches, kicks, and attacks on people. And it, uh, you know, first it flew in the face of, you know, all kinds of stereotypes of, of Jewish weakness, you know, indicating that there, you know, there's this sort of Jew element in Jewish society that, um, you know, that's willing to fight. There's a whole vocabulary that goes along with it. Hmm. Uh, and uh, actually, after I saw this, I wrote a short article about it, uh, which was published by you. <laughs> in Stethel, Montreal. That's um, correct. In fact, I, 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 I think it was your first issue. That's correct. Um, and it was like the most po popular article that's ever been in Shtetl and that probably ever will be in Shtetl. That was such a great I article. I, I don't think it ever will be. I think, you know, you'll, you'll wind up, you know, you've had, you've had other great stuff. <laughs> I, I enjoy Shtetl. I enjoy Shtetl, Montreal. Thank you so much, Eddie. <laughs> Um, well, okay, you brought up so many things and there's so many questions I want to ask you. Like, first of all, you're saying that there was such a big interest in the 1920s in, in Warsaw and Poland for wrestling and boxing and that there were Hasidim in the audience. Why do you think that people were so fascinated by, by, this, and by this sport and by the wrestlers at the time? Um, I think for the same reasons that people are interested in it today. Uh, it's, uh, it's this strange spectacle that's incredibly dramatic. You know, it was one of the only times that there was a, a performer or an athlete that's really representing the Jews. The way that, the way that um, wrestling operated in, in Eastern Europe was based on sort of the pretense of an international tournament. Hmm. Uh, so they would have wrestlers from, you know, the, who are ostensibly from all kinds of different countries, mostly in Europe, but also from America, uh, there's always an African involved. And what's funny is that most of the wrestlers were allegedly not from where they actually said they were. Hmm. Um, they were really just, they, they're, they're like athlete actors, hmm. uh, the same way they are today. But the audience didn't really know or care. But you know, because of this dynamic, 
you had, for instance, in Warsan Lodge, the, the promoters purposely created an atmosphere where the, the Polish wrestler uh, would meet the Jewish wrestler in the final. Hmm. Because the two major populations in Warsaw were Jews and Poles. So, you know, these are the audiences that are most geared up to have their wrestler win. Uh, and because the Jewish, the, the, the Jewish population was the minority, invariably in this final tournament, every single year, the Jew would lose. <laughs> I, I know we don't have a ton of time, so I want to ask you about some of the wrestlers and the boxers that you feature in the exhibit. Can you tell us about some of your favorite ones? Right. Uh, you know, some of them have these really compelling backstories. There's, for instance, uh, Raphael Halperin, who was born in Vienna in the 1920s, and his, his family emigrated to uh, Palestine in 1933, and they were an extremely religious family. They moved to Bnei Brak, which is um, a Haredi suburb of Tel Aviv, and he went to yeshiva. He wasn't, but after living in Palestine for a few years, he became interested in exercise, and he went to his <laughs> rabbi and asked for permission to begin lifting weights. And he was given permis- permission, and he got so into it, he became so adept at it that it, by 1950, he became the second Mr. Israel. After that, uh, he was discovered by an American tourist who had some connections to wrestling and said, I'm bringing you to to, to work as a wrestler. I'll make a ton of money. Uh, I don't know if he really made a ton of money, but he moved to America and started wrestling. Um, he never wrestled on Shabbos. Um, he was known as the wrestling rabbi. And in- The wrestling rabbi? Wrestling rabbi, yeah. Okay. <laughs> he... he, he um, he went back to Israel in the 1960s, when, and, and he tried a, a number of, you know, in the late 60s and early 70s, he, he did a, no, a variety of different things. He sort of fashioned himself. He still wrestled, um, but he also was a kind of an entrepreneur and brought all these kind of American products to Israel. He, for example, he uh, built the first automat in Israel. I don't know if you know what an automat is. No. It, it's, it's, it's like an odd... odd uh, it's, it's a restaurant, essentially, where you have, um, it's like a gigantic vending machine. Okay. Uh, where, but it's, it, I think it started in the 1920s. And um, basically, you'd, you'd you know, put money in, and you'd open a little door and, and take out a sandwich or a piece of pie. Um, and all of, these, all of this food was replaced by a, a hand. There were people behind it. Um, so it wasn't really truly automated, but it was called <laughs> the Automat. Okay. So he brought this. He brought this. He brought this strange idea to Israel. I don't think it succeeded very well. He also opened the first automated car wash in Israel. Wow. Um, yeah. Then he went back to yeshiva, became ordained as a rabbi. What? Um, oh my God. Yes. He became ordained as a rabbi. I uh, never really worked as a rabbi, uh, but instead opened an, an optical chain called Optica Halperin, uh, which means Halperin Optics, and uh, it became the the most successful optical chain in Israel. And it made him a multimillionaire. Uh, and once he had large sums of money at, at his disposal, he started to create uh, projects, or f- actually fund projects, to promote um, Sabbath of observance. So, for instance, he funded the installation of sirens all over Israel that go off when, uh, when the Sabbath begins. So everyone knows to stop working or driving. Oh. Um, he also, um, <laughs> okay. I think, in the, in, the, in, the, in the 1990s, he funded the he funded the development of a, of a credit card that wouldn't work on the Sabbath. Oh my gosh. Um, 
he's this really compelling, interesting character, and you know, he got his start in wrestling, hmm. uh, which is you know, which is so so fascinating. Um, what about the guy who's on the poster for the exhibit? There's one guy on the poster who's like a very large man. That's Martin the Blimp Levy. Okay. Um, Blimp Levy was also a really fascinating character. Um, was born in Boston to immigrant parents. He uh, had some kind of glandular issue. It's not entirely clear what was wrong, but he was he was always obese. Um, I wrote an article about him once, and I was as a result, I was sent emails by relatives of his uh, who sent me his bar mitzvah picture. Uh, and at his bar mitzvah, he, was to, he weighed 200 pounds. Um, he was always a big kid, a big man. Uh, he, wound up working, he wound up working as a fat man at a circus mm-hmm. where he was discovered by a man by the name of Jack Pfeffer, who was uh, a wrestling promoter uh, who took him on as, and created him and sort of transformed him into a professional wrestler. And he had a very, in spite of his bulk, he, you know, had a, he, was, he was very athletic uh, and quite nimble. I have a photograph of him doing the splits in the, in the wrestling ring. <laughs> uh, okay. uh, and uh, in, in, the, in the memoirs of other wrestlers, he's also regarded, you know, they, they, were, all, they were always suspect of, of his ability, but, you know, they all concede that he was, he was a reasonably good athlete. And he, you know, he won matches and he, and he was this, you know, he, he's considered, you know, one of these freak wrestlers. I mean, he, you know, he weighed over 600 pounds, um, you know, he's absolutely enormous. Um, you know, there are articles in the newspapers talking about, you know, what kind of things, you know, he eats for breakfast and it'll be like, you know, three dozen eggs and, you know, four loaves of bread. And, uh, you know, I mean, it's, 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 it's more than likely that it's made up, but, um, what was his you know, name it, again? Um, Martin Levy. Well, he was, he was, he wrestled as the blimp. A very, a very inspirational figure in Jewish history, it sounds like. Yeah. Listen, I mean, you, you, you don't, you know, when, if you read your average Jewish history book, you, you, you don't get this kind of material. Yeah. Like we really... And yet, and yet at, a, at a certain point in history, the, these people were, you know, important to members of the Jewish community. They were, they were, you know, they were considered celebrities. Do you feel like that they had some sort of different role to play when uh, they were wrestling in America uh, versus when they were in, in Poland? Like there was a different yeah, yeah, uh, they relationship. Did. They, did. they did, but it was but during the for instance, during the nineteen twenties and thirties, especially or really more more, more the thirties. Um, it was um, uh, it was very useful to be a Jewish wrestler. Um, Jews liked wrestling. Uh, they were, you know they, they were they made up in in areas of large Jewish settlement. Jews made up a significant component of the audience. Uh, and uh, they always, the promoters were always trying to get Jewish wrestlers, so much so to the point that um, people who weren't Jewish wrestled as Jews, hmm. uh, which, which is an unusual phenomenon. It's, um, you know, people generally don't pose as Jews. Uh, it's not something that's ever usually beneficial. Right. Um, so, and especially in something like the wrestling ring, where you know the, there's this sort of invented violence. Um, but it was, uh, you know, it, it, it was, it, you know, people wrestling as Jews were popular figures. You know, they often wrestled with, um, you know, with stars of David on their trunks, and they were advertised in magazines as Jewish wrestlers. Hmm. You know, they would say the Jewish wrestler, or it would be, you know, there's the Hebrew Hercules or the Jewish Tarzan. I so love the expressions, the Yiddish expressions for fighting. There's some really colorful, strange ones. Can you tell us just a couple of them? You know, they're, they're, they're great. You know, these, these expressions are great. 
Uh, a lot of them are onomatopoeic. You know, they sound like, you know, what they are. There's like zboch and tunk and buch and tomsk. You know, then there are others. There's like, one of my favorites is, is dos lempel, which means the lamp, virtually the little lamp. Um, and this is when you, uh, you squeeze your victim's nose with your, fourth, for, with your forefinger and thumb. And uh, because this is called the lempel. I think why the, the reason they call it this is because the person's nose turns red. But if you're able to force snot out of their nostrils, Oy. they call that they call that lichtelach, which means little lights. <laughs> okay, the lempel. Some of these, are, some of these are, are, are you know are very are strangely specific. There, there's um, some that are like more religious. I remember I always loved the one with the talus. Um, there's mashkante. Aroishnem in a mashkante afem. This is to take out a mortgage on someone. Um, you know, it doesn't have to be with a talus, but it's, it's when you hold someone down, and or it's when two people hold someone down and, the other, and a third person beats them. Right. But there were, there were instances uh, that I read of in the Yiddish press of Warsaw where um, during fights in synagogues, people would, you know, take a mashkanta out on someone uh, by holding them down with a talus. Okay. Uh, and, you know, with someone else beating them. Have you ever seen that? You know, like? it, it, I, I've never actually seen it happen. Um, I'm not sure I want to see it happen. <laughs> uh, you know, th- this is one of these strange elements. I mean, you know, violence exists in all cultures. Yeah. Um, and it exists among the Jews as well. And they have their own specific vocabulary to, uh, to deal with it. Hmm. So uh, with all your research, did you find out all the origins of these expressions and who came up with them? No, that's, that's I mean, these are impossible to know. The, you know, the, the, the list itself from this 1926 anthology uh, was compiled by a number of different people, and many of the terms came from uh, informants who were criminals and street fighters. Hmm. Uh, and so there's no way that, you, you know, you, you have, they'll give you a resource, but they don't, you don't know who the person is or, hmm. uh, or you know, the origin of the word. I mean, you, you know, some of them, like for instance, the words that are onomatopoeic, you know, you, you, you know this. Um, you know, other words like, um, like um, a signature, uh, but in Yiddish, you use the expression leg nechasimaf tonim, which means to, to leave your signature on someone's face. Right. Um, you know, <laughs> means to punch them in the face. Uh-huh. Uh, so, so that's, you know, that's a word of Hebrew origin, the word for signature. So that, you know, hmm. you can sort of understand how that works. Um, it's so poetic. You can figure out. Yeah, no, it's, I mean, this is, language is, is you know, is, is really compelling. It's, it's really, it's really fascinating how it functions. Hmm. Um, you know, how these words get created and, and how, you know, how slang enters into, you know, everyday language and then ultimately into other languages. You know, that's like the fluidity and the flexibility of language is so, is so fascinating. Hmm. So, uh, Eddie Portnoy, <laughs> this is your life. No, Eddie, thank you so much for uh, coming on to Stadel again. I really appreciate you taking the time. And, My uh, pleasure. Yeah, thank I hope- you for having me. Yeah, thanks. And I hope that you'll, um, in the future, write another article for the Shtetl magazine that will be like the next most popular article. Um, I can't wait to hear it. <laughs> okay. <I hope> so. <laughs> okay, no pressure. No pressure. <laughs> okay, bye. Take care, Eddie. All right, you too. Thanks so much. Okay, bye.
So that was Eddie Portnoy. Really, I admire him so much, and his writing is very, very funny. You can check out the article at Shtetl Magazine, the Yiddish Fight Club, and actually see a list of so many of these really funny and interesting words and, and see the explanation of them. Or if you happen to be going to New York City at any time in the near future, you can go see the exhibit at the YIVO Institute called the Yiddish Fight Club. And we're going to take a break and come back with a whole change of, of pace, and we're going to be talking about the the amazing poet, painter, Joni Mitchell. But first, I thought I'd play another Daniel Kahn song that really goes well with the theme of the Yiddish Fight Club. It's about an underworld character called Avremel the Filcher. And we'll be back in just a few minutes on Shtetl on the shortwave. On a Es hat ihn neut, mich auch ausgetrieben. Wenn ich auch in 13 Jahren gehe, in der Fremde, weit von Mannes Augen. Es hat ihn Schmutz, mich die Gas der Zeugen. Geworden ist von mir Avoiler, ja. Ich bin Avremel, der Feigster Marwiche, größer Kinsler, Arbeit leicht und sicher. Das erste Mal, welches Gedenken wissen, Ach, einen Triese verlachen in der Bräut, oi, oi. auf Marken, wie in der Prostejacken. Zug nur bei Karge, schmutzige Magnaten. Ich bin sich mich heil, wenn ich hab, als ein Magnat. Ich bin Ain't I alright? 
Salut! Ici Bernard Adamus, vous écoutez Shtetl on the Shortwave, live on CKUT 90.3 FM. Cześć, tutaj Bernard Adamus, słuchacie Shtetl on the Shortwave na CKUT 90.3 FM. back on Shtetl on the Shortwave on CKUT 90.3 FM in Montreal. And it's nice to be back here in Montreal and Canada. I've been away for a few months in the Middle East and uh, producing Shtetl from over there. And if you want to hear some of the episodes of music and interviews and stories from Israel and Palestine, uh, you can go onto the website, shtetlmontreal.com, and they're all there, um, all the Shtetl Middle East episodes. So I hope that you'll enjoy them. I really uh, learned a lot producing them. But now I'm back in Shtetl, Montreal, and very excited to play this next interview for you with a woman who is a very old and close friend of Joni Mitchell's. Her name is Malka Marom, and she has a new book called called Joni Mitchell in her own words. I learned so much about Joni Mitchell from reading it, about her uh, her life and her ideas, and I have even more respect for her now than I did before. I really admire her very much. She's really a Canadian icon and, and somebody who lives her life exactly how she wants to without uh, apologizing. So uh, this is Malka Maram. She's a journalist. She's a singer. And uh, this is uh, my interview with her that I did uh, last week at uh, Blue Metropolis. I think Johnny's work is timeless. I think it will outlast us all. I think she's a treasure and an inspiration to every generation. Now, how did I meet her? <laughs> you, have, you have a year, I'll tell you the story. <laughs> no, it, it was on a November night. Uh, I was at a crossroads in my professional life and my private life. I had two little children and a very bad marriage. And so I was driving around thinking what to do, what to do, what to do. It was getting late. I was dying for, <laughs> for something to drink. So the only place that was open was the riverboat. The riverboat is a coffee house. I don't know if you ever heard of it. It was a coffee house in the 60s and 70s that had the best sound in the continent. So all the singers used to love to, to sing there. And so it was very late at night. I think it was one o'clock or, 
or two o'clock even in the morning, and I was driving around, and this was the only light that was on. So I decided I'll go down. So I see a girl on I see a girl on the little platform. There was not a stage even, and she looked like one of the servers that was fiddling around with the guitar. Her back was to the I was the only one in the audience, <laughs> except for the servers. It was so late. And so I figured, well, you know, they still have to stay up till three or four o'clock in the morning. So the girls are just bored, you know. So she, she fiddled with the guitar, and blah, blah, blah. And I have a cappuccino. She's still fiddling with the guitar. Anyway, I figured she was tuning the guitar. I figured she, she will never learn to tune the guitar, I thought, you know, <laughs> of course. And, uh, and then she started to sing. She started to sing Urge for Going. She started to sing the circle game, and round and round and round we go in the circle game. You can only look where you're going, but you can't look back to where you came from. You can't go back to where you came from. You can only look back. And then she sang a song called I Had a King. I had a king in, in a rusted carriage who carried me off to marriage too soon. The keys won't fit the door. My thoughts won't fit the man. I can't go back there anymore. I can't go back. And I knew she's singing about me. She's singing from my heart. This is my position with my husband. I was like bawling, I'm sitting there crying, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and then she sang the last, you closed the set with both sides. I've looked at life from both sides now. You know the song. She finishes the set. I just jumped from my seat. Of course, I applaud like crazy, you know. And I'm, bravo, I'm the only person there. <laughs> and I jumped from my seat and I go to her and I, I said, what's your name? She said, Joni Mitchell. Rose and flows of angel hair And ice cream castles in the Everywhere I've looked at clouds that we but now they only block the sun, they rain and snow on everyone. So many things I would have done, but clouds got in my way. I've looked at clouds from Don't give yourself away 
surface crowds I looked at life that way But now old friends are acting strange They shake their heads They say I've changed Well, something's lost But something's gained In living every day I've looked at life from both sides now From win and lose And still somehow it's life's illusions I recall I really don't know life I've looked at life from both sides now From up and down And still interview with Joni she talks about her childhood and about her relationship to her family to yes. religion yes. I didn't know that uh, Joni had polio as a kid can you tell us a bit about that period and how it affected her uh, Joni says that if it were not for trouble she would not be a musician she meant to be a painter she wanted to be a painter all her life it was because she had this illegitimate child that she went to Toronto to get money she gigged, you know, like played the guitar and sang. And that's how she became a musician. But returning to the polio, when she was a child, I think it was nine years old, Neil Young also suffered from polio. Hmm. Yeah, it was a big epidemic, especially in the West. And so she was hospitalized about 100, 100 kilometers or miles from her home. And her mother visited her only once. On Christmas, she brought a little tree and the little ornaments. And somebody gave her also a book of, uh, you know, like crayons, like you can fill in with crayons the, the like paint, coloring, coloring book. And she started singing, she was with another boy in the room, she started singing Christmas carols, and he told her, shut up. And she told me, it is in this scene, it is in the book itself. She says, that was my first audience reaction. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> she was there for nine months, alone, away from her parents. She's an only child. Very Sorry. difficult. I think it affected all her life. She really loves to dance. It created the madness for dancing. I think many of her songs are done to be danced because she loves to dance. And so I think it's because she couldn't walk and her legs wouldn't give, wouldn't hold her, that she became crazy for dancing. It was like a miracle that she came out of it. Yeah, really. And she and Neil Young also. Huh. 
Really? I didn't realize that once somebody had polio, it's like so rare that they would be cured from it or that they would be able to walk properly. And You see? Yeah. You know? Yeah. Never say never. She was determined to walk, I must tell you. She, she says in, the, in this book, that read it, is Joni Mitchell in her own words. It's not I'm saying it, she's saying it. That she said, I'm going to walk. I'm not going to stay there. I'm going to walk on my own two feet. And she did. I think it was really a, a tremendous amount of will. And it also brought her closer to the church. She, she was a child at that time. She didn't like the church because it didn't answer the question. She said, Johnny said that the main theme in her life is the garden. And look at the, of course, Wood, Woodstock is about the garden. Yeah. And they took paradise and paved it, you know, it's the garden. And I think that it's because in the, in the church, they wouldn't tell her how come Adam and Eve had children. Whom did they marry? How did they have children? And they wouldn't tell her that it was an, a, 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 not a real story, you know. And then when she got uh, better, she sang in church. She agreed to go to church. She didn't know. She felt somebody stronger cured, helped her to get cured. But she sang only once, and afterwards she started smoking at the age of nine <laughs> of the choir. <laughs> So she didn't stick with the choir? No. No. She sounds like she had a very uh, interesting relationship with sin and religion. and These are major themes in her. I think of all the writers that are like troubadours that I know of, she's got the strongest sense of morality. You know, like what is right, what is wrong? H how are we ruining the planet? What was given to us? She is like almost like a prophet in that regard. I hope she's not right because she doesn't see such a good end for the planet. They paid paradise, put up a parking lot with a pink hotel, a boutique, and a swinging hot spot. Seem to go that you don't know what you've got till it's gone. They paid paradise, put up a parking lot. They took all the trees, put them in a tree museum, and they charged the people a dollar and a half just to see them. Seem to go that you don't know what you've got till it's gone. They pay paradise, put up a parking lot. Hey, farmer, farmer, put away the DDT now. Give me spots on my apples, or leave me the birds and the bees. Please don't it always seem to go. That you don't know what you've got till it's gone. They pay paradise, put up a parking lot. You talked about uh, during an interview that you did with her, she revealed to you um, the story about the child that she gave up. Yes. What did she say to you, and how did you feel when she told you? Because this is not public knowledge. No. I I felt uh, it just came out like almost like we were in the kitchen having tea and it was not uh, supposed to come. 
we were not supposed to talk. I mean, that was my, the first interview. We were not friends with you. We just, I don't even know why she gave me this interview. You know, she remembered me from the night that I jumped at her and was so, so she remembered me and she invited me to come over, you know. So before I came, I said, we can talk only when we record things. I don't want to have things off the record. But this was the only time that she slipped, you know. And the, and she said, you know, no, nobody knows it and cannot really. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, it's like not. It's kept it secret, blah blah, you know, for many many years. And I kept it in a safe for twenty years. That part, that real, that it was real to real at that time. Wow. <laughs> uh, after twenty years, when it was common knowledge, I, I took it out. I was afraid. She was so famous. Were you surprised when she told you about no. the child that she gave up? No, no, I was not. I was not. Uh, I was not part of the establishment. I was part of the. I was part of the Bohemian c culture. You know, sort of like uh, we were artists. We we all had kind of secrets. You know, and uh, I, f I felt extremely sad because I knew that it was very hard. And the book she tells in in this book, she really says in her own words how difficult it was. And I knew it also because I was a single mother at the time that it was really the, the loser of the losers. They wouldn't rent me an apartment. Because you were a single yeah, mother. you already in the introduction, yes. Yeah. Mm. And so Johnny had it much worse. She didn't have money to survive. Originally she thought she would keep the baby and then it wasn't possible, so she gave it up? She married Chuck Mitchell. Because, because he promised her that they could keep the baby. And then he reneged. Mm. And he lost a great wife. Has she still continued searching for the kid? Of course she continued to search all the time. But you know, my book, if you noticed in my book, we talk only about things that are connected to the creative process. We mm. don't talk, we, I don't dwell on it because she told it and she described how it affected her writing and that it really started her, her, her writing, this tragedy. But after that, we don't go back to anything that you, could, you might possibly put under gossip. Mm -hmm. The purpose of the book was to open up and reveal a glimpse of the mystery that Johnny Mitchell is a mystery, as, as uh, Ishiguro said. She's a mystery, and so we, we want to offer a glimpse into that mystery, not to go into the usual thing that you, it's here today and gone tomorrow. We want to stay in something that is timeless. Mm -hmm. And so I really don't, don't see why we should do it now. It just seemed like that was an important part of her creative process in of, a way. Of course. Yeah. I mean, she wrote Green, she wrote the, the, her, her marvelous uh, uh, album Blue you know, as part of it. It's a big tragedy. Because two years later, she had all the money in the world and she couldn't find her. So having known Joni over the years, yes. how have you seen her changed? Have you seen her, her process and her creative, um, her music change, her personality? Her, how have you seen her evolve over the years? Joni never stays the same. Okay. She always tries. If you think, oh, you know Joni, boom, she shows you another aspect. And that is really why she's a mystery. Mm. 
Okay, so we said that the the book is not about gossip and it's not about her personal life, but... It is her personal life when it pertains to creativity. Yeah. All, it is all what pertains to the creativity and creative process. Not who she slept with for how long, although she said that court and spark was because John Guerin, a fabulous drummer, was courting and sparking her. It doesn't matter. So we were really for the timeless stuff. Everything like like polio is important, you know, that, uh, you know, like her, you know, that she went to an art school and she wanted to be an artist and then she had this baby and she couldn't be an artist. So in all her life, she said, I'm a painter who became a musician by accident. Mm. But circumstances of life, she she puts it, of course, in a different, uh, in a much better way. Yeah. But that's what she meant. Mm. So when we talk about her personal, and we do talk a lot about her personal life, it is as pertains to art. Mm. And the reason for it also is, for instance, if you want to be a songwriter or an artist now, you read this book and you learn how to live in order to create. Mm. You know, it's not just like titillating stuff. It's really like, almost like, okay, you want to do it, this is the price. Mm. You want to do it, this is how you do it. Yeah. No, it's very it's very inspiring and educational on the, the creative process for sure. And um, when I was talking about the gossip, I was referring to her like her two Jewish men that we all love to talk <laughs> about, Bob Dylan and Leonard Cohen, and she had a relationship with both of them. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about her relationship to those men. Well, I think, you know, in Hebrew, there is a word, I think you would know it, kinat sufrim. It is a jealousy of writers. It's a special jealousy. It's not like a usual jealousy. Hmm. Because a writer feels that the book or the song, it is their baby. I think that there was always, you call it rivalry, and they knew before the rest of the public knew that how timeless she would be, and that she is really like, up there, I don't, I don't like to say in the arts who is number one, number two, number three, but she's up there. And they knew the value of her music as well as her lyrics. You know, I mean, musically, she's, I think, superior to both of them, I may say so, <laughs> although I love them both. I mean, I'm crazy about them both. It's funny, reading the book, it's hard to tell. Half the time she really admires these men and thinks they're very talented, and other times she makes digs at them, too. Of course. Yeah. Yeah, because it was very hard for her to be in a men's world. Very hard. Very hard to be an extraordinary, talented, gifted woman as Joni Mitchell in a men's world. The recording artists are men, the musicians are men, the recording executives are men, the buyers are men, all men. It was very, very difficult. They sold more, that had it easier for, than she did. Mm-hmm. She had to be very quiet under the red radar, as she says, in order to do what she was doing. Do you think uh, Joni Mitchell regrets her choices? Oh my goodness, I never heard her saying regret. No, I didn't ask her that question. I don't think it's a legitimate question. You don't think it's a legitimate question? No. Why? Because I think if she would regret something, she'll do something about it. Or you cannot do something about it, you know. Or she would write about it. 
you know, we would know it from a song. We all regret. I'm sure it's in all the songs. Everything you want to know about Johnny Mitchell is in her songs and in this great book, <laughs> Johnny Mitchell in her own words, Conversation with Malka Marom. <laughs> it is a great book. I learned so much about her. How would you say your relationship with Joni has affected you in your life? <laughs> How does it affect you to have a terrific girlfriend? It's everything. There you have it. She's been a friend for more than 40 years. A very inspiring friend. I love her, and it really was a tribute to her. I did this book for her. Just before our love got lost, you said, I am as constant as a northern star, and I said, Constantly in the darkness Where's that at? If you want me, I'll be in the bar On the back of a cartoon coaster In the blue TV screen light I drew a map of Canada
Hello, this is Riff Cohen and you're listening to Stetel on the short way on CKUT in Montreal. Paris